So uh, would you please stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture found in Proverbs chapter 22, and just one verse. Proverbs 22, verse 6, where we read, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, it will not depart from him. I ask for your blessings on this portion, on our hearts, that we would be receptive to your word. Direct us, O Lord, and give us insight. May there, no, may there be no one who resists you, who resists the Holy Spirit. And this we pray in the wonderful and glorious name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I've said this before, how Augustine, a well-known bishop or overseer of Hippo in the 4th century, once said, if you were to give me a child for the first five years of his life and remove him from me thereafter, he will never forget what I will have brought into his life in the first five years. And that is a powerful statement. Someone said, children are like wet cement. You may have heard of that too. One of the uh, things I remember as a parent is how much of a role my wife and I played in the life of our children. And uh, I remember before uh, becoming parents, while my wife was pregnant, we were very concerned that um, we would raise this child up right, not only uh, physically and intellectually and emotionally, but spiritually. And that was one of our prayers. We would pray, Lord, help us, give us the grace, because it was not easy, and it's still not easy, to raise up children, to make sure that they are healthy, well-rounded children. When our firstborn entered our home, we were totally unprepared. By the time our secondborn came, Veronica, we were a little more prepared. But it's still a challenging task, as you can well imagine. Unfortunately, I was not really uh, able to realize the impact I had and my wife had on our children. Now I realize how important it is that we spend more time with our children, especially in the formative years. Very important. Uh, We're going to consider this verse, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, it will not depart from him. In the light of what I said earlier from the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus says, let them come to me and do not hinder them. All right? Um, We can, as I said earlier, either hinder a child or enable him to have faith in God. When should we train our children? Well, as I just said, the first five years are, very, are crucial. They're formative. Uh, a child has the capacity of absorbing 100% uh, in, the, in the formative years. And then as we grow older, we absorb far less. You know? In fact, right now, I absorb a lot less. I mean, someone can tell me their name. I should remember names. Now some names escape me. I'll make mistakes. That was not the case when I was younger. I had a very good memory. And I could imagine how good of a memory I had in the first five years. So what you deposit in, their, in a child in the first five years is crucial. Uh, they have an emotional bank, they have a mental bank, they have a spiritual bank, and of course a physical bank. And so we need to be depositing in all those four areas. If you read the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus grew in grace, in wisdom, in favor with God, and in favor with men. So there was a social development, there was a physical development, there was a mental and emotional growth, And, of course, he grew in favor with God. Nothing hindered 
uh, the Lord's growth. So he was well-rounded. He was, of course, the quintessential man. Nobody was like our Lord in every sense. So in, in that's the way we want to make sure that our children grow, not just physically and mentally, but in every sense. And as I said, the first five years are very formative. Um, you may have heard about this experiment about um, a gosling, a baby goose. And, and when they're about to hatch, the mother goose has to be close by. It's crucial. Because if a mother goose should not be close by, the gosling, as soon as it hatches, will attach itself to anything that's nearby. So, for example, if you were to have a, a deflated football, because I think that was the experiment that they did, the gosling would attach itself to the deflated football. And if a mother goose would appear a few minutes after that bonding would take place, the mother goose would have no chance under heaven to steal that bond and make sure the gosling would follow the mother goose. The gosling would continue to follow the deflated football. And that's the way it is. And I think that is very um, revealing. It shows how important it is that even as firstborns, it's important that whoever is there in their lives be the ones that love them enough to give them what they need, not only physically, like I said, or mentally or emotionally, but above all else, spiritually. The um, uh, parents that I spoke to earlier on have an awesome responsibility, but there are some here that are single parents, and for whatever reason, you have now the uh, responsibility of raising your child. And in Scripture, we have some single parents as well. I think of the mother of Timothy and the grandmother, Eunice and Lloyd. Uh, both of these names were mentioned by Paul. The father was not mentioned. We don't even have a clue who Timothy's father is. We know he's Greek, but we don't have his name. So if he was there, he was absent when it came to his spiritual development, if he was there. And maybe he was absent for all those areas that we just spoke about earlier on. But the mother was there. And Paul says how Timothy knew scriptures right from his childhood. And he, those scriptures were deposited in Timothy's life, both by mother and grandmother. And that was instrumental. That, that deposit of scripture was instrumental for the shaping of Timothy's life. Years later, he becomes a servant of God. He works in the ministry with Paul, and, and he's used by God to be the overseer of the church of Ephesus. So we need to remember how important it is to um, develop a child or train up a child in the ways of the Lord. Now, secondly, the thing is, how important is it? Well, some have read this verse to mean that if you train a child in the ways of the Lord, there is no way under heaven that that child will walk away from God. Well, that's not the case. If we read scriptures... We read, for example, that Hezekiah was a godly king, and yet his son, Manasseh, was someone who strayed so far away from God that he offered his own sons in, um, in, in sacrifice, in fire, to God, to his God, an idol. Think about that. That's how far away he strayed from the God of Israel. Or we think of the children of Samuel. Samuel was a prophet in Israel, and yet his sons did not walk in the ways of the Lord. So 
So, so the fact that you deposit truth, God's truth, the fact that you spend time with them, that you pray with them, and that you raise them up in the ways of the Lord doesn't guarantee that when they're older, they will continue to walk in the ways of the Lord. But what it does guarantee is that whatever you do deposit will not be forgotten. It's there. It's in their memory bank. And God could use that in a special way. Now, I'll bring in an example of how this actually plays out in the life of Moses. Moses was born in a time when, the, as you know, the Israelites were in, under great duress under Pharaoh. They, uh, the parents were ordered to kill every male child. Well, the parents of Moses decided not to kill Moses. In fact, it tells us in Hebrews that by faith, uh, Moses was spared. So the parents spared little Moses because they placed their faith in God. But there was a law. And so what did they do? They finally placed him in a basket, and they couldn't hold him any longer, and they let him float in his basket on a river. And the sister of Moses was nearby, it was Miriam, and she was following this basket because she cared about her little brother. And, and who was taking a bath in the river? Well, Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter notices the child, and she has sympathy for this child. You know, that was, of course, God-ordained. And so she goes, I would love to have this child, but I'm not fit. I can't nurse the child. And so the sister, Miriam, comes by and goes, well, I have someone who can take care of him. Would you like me to find her for you? And she goes, of course, do that. (laughs) Of course, who does she find? Her mom. So her mom comes, uh, which is Jochebed, and and Jochebed takes little Moses, her own son, and nurses him for the first few years until such a time as Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses away and brings her into the palace and then raises him up with all the culture and the, uh, uh, the, the godless, when I say godless, I mean the God of Israel, the godless mindset of Egypt, right? So they worshiped idols. They, he learned the Egyptian language. He learned our culture. He, he lived in opulence, of course. He was well taken care of. He was a prince in Egypt. But then we realize that at a certain point, um, he does something. And we read this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 27. And so I'd like here to read, that you read with me, read this passage. It says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, and this was about when he was close to 40, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he turned his back on everything. And he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. So the Israelites, as you know, were slaves. And he chose to be mistreated with them rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded this grace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible." Something happened at the age of 40. Maybe it may have happened a few years before, leading up to that, but at 40, he makes a decision. How could he have turned his back to so much wealth? He must have been a billionaire by then for all the things that he had, right? And how did he turn his back to that power? Because he was going to be perhaps the next pharaoh. We don't know for sure, but definitely he was going to be up there. How does he turn his back to all that? Because what his parents did when 
little Moses was with them was to train him in the ways of the Lord. And they say, how do you know that? Well, if they had enough faith to spare him, they definitely had enough faith to train him. They wouldn't have kept all that God had done for Israel, for the revelation that God had given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and what God had done to Joseph, a secret. They would have revealed it to him as he was growing. And so they deposited as much as they could into his mental bank, into his emotional bank, made sure that they knew, that he knew that the God of Israel was his God. And then they trusted God. And so what do I say this? Some of us have, have had heartbreaks because we have children that have walked away from the church or even from faith. And some of us have experienced that where our child does no longer believe in God or does no longer want to have anything to do with God. And because the culture has somehow gotten in, into their minds and has influenced them. And that happens. Uh, people that are dear to us uh, have experienced that. So what do you do there? What do you, what do, you do? Well, you feel sometimes that you're a failure. As a parent, you feel that you, what did I do wrong? I prayed, I, I deposited God's word, I shared from uh, God's word. What, why, is this, why did this happen? Well, you don't have to worry about um, why it happened. Your responsibility is to just deposit and be an influence. I was speaking to a mother not too long ago um, who was removed from her children, and, uh, and she was sharing with me the, the difficult circumstances in which she finds herself. And I basically encourage her, you're, you're still an influence. Your children still need you. Though they're teenagers, they need you as an influence, as an encouragement, as a support. They need to hear your voice. They need to know that you're there for them. You may not have the same uh, role to play when they were younger. You played a different role. You deposited in them. Now they're not as receptive, but you're still valuable to them. Never forget that. So we are responsible in training our children in making sure that God's word is deposited in their life. Um, Never minimize your role as parents. Rear them up in the ways of the Lord with the grace that God provides you. And if you've instructed your kids and they walk away, trust the Lord. And uh, we know this from experience from many people that we've talked to. We've seen people come to the Lord, back to the Lord many years later. Um, do your part and God will do his when the time comes. Who's responsible to training the children that God has given us. Some um, feel that our responsibility as parents is to feed them, give them a roof, and then as far as uh, academic is, the academic aspect, school, the school is there. And we'll stress that they do their homework and that they excel academically. Or if we're into sports, we'll stress that they also are engaged into sports. But the training that is most important for, children, for God's children as parents, is that we train them spiritually, that we take the time to underscore God's word. How do we do that? Well, we share with them our story. We share with them how God's word has impacted. If we do not take care of reading God's word and feeding ourselves, we will never give it to our child. They will catch what you live 
more than catch what you say. If you simply say, let's go to church on Sunday, and the rest of the week you're living a life that is engrossed with this world, that's what they're going to follow. They, more, what is, is, more what is seen is caught than what is told with your words. That's very important to remember. If you tell yourself, I am the one responsible in feeding this child God's word, because no one else is going to do it. As a mother, as a father, you are responsible. If you tell yourself that, and then you make sure that you feed yourself with God's word, that you let God speak to you and shape you, correct you, and encourage you, depending on the circumstances in which you find yourself, then you could share that with your child. But if God's word is absent from your life, then you will mechanically say, listen, it's time to go to church on Sunday, and that's all you'll do. That's the best you can do, because God's word is not active in your life. If Psalm 1, for example, we're told, blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. If that psalm is precious to you, and your delight is in the law of the Lord, then you're going to pass that delight to your children. Now, he may not embrace it at a certain point. He said, look, my dad, my mom, they delight in God. They delight in reading God's word. God's word is precious to them, but it's not precious to me. I'm not interested. They may walk away from it. But like I said, at least they see it. They see it in you. You are responsible in taking care of yourself. If you fail to take care of yourself, then you will never, ever train your child in the ways of the Lord. You will simply give them cliches, you know, it's important that we be good people and it's important we go to church or whatever. But if you delight in God's word, if you delight in reading God's word and in prayer, then that delight will be passed on and they'll catch it. That's why Moses said these words in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and in verses 6 and 7. You know, you remember he had been walking with the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years, right? 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And the book of Deuteronomy is different from the rest of the Torah. Uh, whereas the other books, it says God spoke to Moses, I've told you this before. In Deuteronomy, it's Moses speaking to the people. So Moses is telling the people that sometimes he even gets upset with them. Right? So Moses is basically wrapping up everything that has been said in the 40 years. He's about to die. God has told him that he was going to go up to Mount Nebo, and there he would uh, be... Uh, he'd be terminated and die so at 120 years old, right? And so before he leaves, he says whatever he feels is very important. So he summarizes the law. He has them understand the curse that would come upon them if they break the covenant because they had entered into a covenant with God. And he would understand the blessings that are, that are theirs if they would obey God. And then he says these words, very important. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. These words, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. He's saying this to the parents. Let the word of God be on your heart. Why? And you shall repeat them diligently. Diligently to who? Your sons. And speak of them when? When you sit in your house when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. So first, make sure they're on your heart. 
Make sure that God's word is your delight. And then, after you do that, you will share that with your child. You see, if sports is your delight, you're going to share everything about sports with your child. There's nothing wrong with sports, right? But if that's your delight and not God's word, and God's word will take a back seat and will not be given to your child in a timely way. You're not going to be depositing into his bank when he needs it most, so that when in the future he needs to make decisions and he needs to fight temptation and he needs to stand for himself in a world that more and more is applauding that which is evil and ridiculing that which is wholesome. When he needs to stand up for himself, he won't have the strength to do it. But if you delight in God's word and if you're actually praying and spending time with God, that will pass on to your child, and your child will have strength tomorrow. He will be able to fight temptation. He'll be able to stand. Now, if he chooses to walk away, fine. He'll see the dangers of walking away from God, but he'll always remember because he saw that delight in God in your life. Take care of yourself, and you'll be able to take care of those who are in your care. The government cannot do that for you. The school system cannot do that for you. Aliens will not do that for us. Living on another planet will never fix our problems. Our problems are deep and they're spiritual. It's called sin. That's what it is. And that's why God sent his son. If our problems were only physical, he would have sent a doctor. If our problems were psychological, he would have sent a psychologist. Right? If our problems were financial, he would have sent an economist. Our problem is sin. And that's why he sent a savior who died on the cross. And that message, which was ridiculed in the days of Paul and has been for 2,000 years, is the same message that God offers this world. And he offers it through the church over and over. It's the same message. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And when a parent grabs that and believes that, and then passes it on to his or her children, the children will see it. And in due time, something special will happen, like it happened in the life of Moses. So children need to know at a young age why Jesus came. They need to know that he didn't come to be an example, that he didn't come just to be a teacher. He didn't die because he said he's a teacher. He, they would never have crucified him for that. Right? He didn't die simply because he was a good man. They would never have killed a good man. Think about it. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died because he claimed to be the son of God, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Children need to understand this. And the sooner they understand it, the sooner God's word can have an effect in their lives. They need to know that sin is real that we break God's heart. That we've been breaking God's heart right from the beginning, but God is a merciful God. And he waits patiently for sinners to come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's only one cure for sin, and that is the gospel, which I've been sharing with you. They need to know that God is not only a good God, but that he's a holy God, that he takes sin seriously. Because if sin wasn't serious, he would never have sent his son. 
that one day there is a judgment, that all those who reject the Savior will spend an eternity in punishment. They will suffer horribly because they will have chosen to save themselves on their own terms. And that all those who place their faith in Christ and see themselves as lost, as sinners who deserve judgment, who turn to God and accept the cure, Jesus Christ, the Savior, are saved eternally. Though they die, it's only asleep. I remember when I walked into my son's room, it was about six this time, and someone had died that he knew of, and I made an announcement in church that this person had died, and the funeral was such a date. And that evening, he says, Dad, what's dying? What is that? And how do you explain to a child death? You know? <laughs> so I sat him down, he was in his bed, and he had his pajamas on. And at that moment, an illustration came to me. I said, you know, son, you're going to bed now. You have your pajamas, and you're going to fall asleep. Tomorrow morning, you get up, and you're going to take off your pajamas, and you're going to put on your clothes, and you're going to be ready for the day. And he understood that, because that's what he did every night. He goes, that's what death is. When you go to bed, it's the same as dying. You're sleeping. You're disconnected from this world. Someone who's dead is disconnected on a longer term. That's what the Bible calls it, sleep, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Christian falls asleep, right? But then there's the resurrection. We are awakened, and we are with Christ forever in a new body, ready to serve him in this glorified form. And he said, oh, thank you. And he, and he went to bed with that thought. And of course, when he, as he grew older, he began to understand what death means and the horror and the sadness that death creates. But that there's hope in the gospel. That's what children need to know. Otherwise, they, they go online and it's scary for them. They go into their schools and it's scary. They need to understand the gospel at a tender age. That's our role as parents. And you grandparents have that role too. Just like Timothy's grandmother was helped, did her part in making sure that Timothy grew in the ways of the Lord so you can have that role in your grandchildren as well. Often I've used the illustration that um, a garden is, fruit, is, is productive if we take care of it. All right, I have a garden, I, that's what I do. If I neglect the garden, there was a year I did neglect it because I got hurt. My, my wife took care of it, but she only took care of it because she saw the weeds were just, just covering this entire ground, and she hates weeds. And because I wasn't able to bend, I'd hurt my knee, she took care of the garden that year. And it became beautiful again. A garden is a symbol of a child's life. If we neglect our children, especially their spiritual walk, they're going to have a whole bunch of weeds to deal with. A whole bunch of weeds. But if we take care of that child, we make sure the weeds are pulled out. And how do we do that? We don't have the power, we don't have the wisdom to pull out the weeds. We need God's word. We need to deposit it first into our lives, make sure that it's pulling out the weeds from our minds, our hearts, so that then we can deposit it in our children's lives, in our grandchildren's lives, so that it does its work in their lives as well. That's how we make sure that they are productive, that they're wholesome, well-rounded, growing in favor with men, growing 
in physically, growing intellectually, and growing in favor with God, just like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.